Good morning. This morning I'm with Stephen Skeels. He is, well, he's been in various business entertainment things, creative things for what, 45 years? 45 years, yes. So he's a singer, a songwriter, a composer and lyricist, a producer, an actor, a performer, and he's producing a documentary. What'd I miss? I think that just about covers it. Well, I have a question for you. Okay. Why are you such a slacker? (laughs) (laughs) Say, Say hello to all my peeps. Hello, everyone. I'm really uh, excited to be here. And I think we're going to probably have two episodes with Stephen because there's way too much material to cover in one. So we're <laughs> going to kind of hit some of the professional, but some uh, mostly personal stuff today. Great. So let's hear about you. Tell me, where'd you grow up? Yeah, I know you had a huge, huge family. Yeah, I grew up in Evansville, Indiana, which is right on the border of Kentucky, very southern Indiana. I'm the youngest of 10 children. My siblings were Elaine, Linda, Ricky, Alan, Debbie, Randy, Ronnie, Diana, Gary, and Stephen. And we were actually very, very poor, very uh, severe poverty. My father uh, passed away at nine years old. By the time they'd had me, uh, my father was already in and out of mental institutions. He suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Wow. So it was very, uh, very traumatic and dramatic household growing up, which I think lends itself uh, a lot of good stuff for being an actor and a performer. <laughs> but actually living life, uh, it was... Uh, Quite a scary, scary journey, especially my childhood, for sure. Now, I saw, I was looking at, um, like, your preview for your documentary, Mm -hmm. and your siblings flashed on there. It looked like there was nine of them. Is that right? Yes, one passed. My my brother, Ronnie, actually passed before I was born. He died at nine months old. He had pneumonia. Wow. Yeah, he was a twin. Ronnie and Randy were twins. And my brother Randy was not feeling well at all. So my mom took him to the doctor, but Ronnie seemed to be fine and ended up being that Ronnie had actually had pneumonia and kind of like a crib death. He passed away in his wow. sleep. Wow. It was very traumatic for my mother, yeah, of course. It was hard on her, right? Yes. I had a sister that died three years before me at mm. birth. Same thing. So it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're very poor. Very are, poor. Are you the only gay guy in your family? Well, I have, I have a brother who I think would, I don't know if he would uh, verbalize that he's bisexual, but I kind of have known that he's bisexual for quite some time. But he's very different from me. I'm an artist. I mean, it took me a long time to deal with my sexuality as well. I mean, I dated a woman for four years, thought I was going down that path. And then I finally just realized I couldn't live that lifestyle. I mean, right. I started performing professionally at 15 and I was already going out of town and starting to you know, look at boys and that sort of thing. And then I end up started to act upon that a little bit later, 17, 18. How, how old were you when you said, hmm, I'm different? You probably didn't have the word gay at that point, right? I, I mean, I was always a different sort of child. My siblings would say, I mean, I was, I pretty much popped out of the womb, like being a, a performer. <laughs> and when I was four or five, I would just used to get up and entertain my, my siblings. And they would take it for so long. They're like, mom, please make him stop and throw pillows at me, try to do anything they could to get me to stop, which only, you know, made me want to do it even more. So um, what you're saying is when you were born, the doctors spanked you and instead of yelling, you sang. I sang. <laughs> you went, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, and so I knew that I was always, I always marched to my own drum. That's what my mom said from the time I was a very, very little boy. And I think everything really shifted and changed uh, when I was seven years old. My mom, somehow she was able to get a little bit of money and she took me and my sister, Diana, they were having like a cheap night at the movies to see the movie called Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand. Oh, yeah. And I was so little, I couldn't see. I had to sit on the back of my knees and set up because I, you know, I was too little. I was, I was also very small for my, for my age until I was 15, 16. Okay. I grew another foot. I mean, they didn't really? know if I was ever going to grow. I was very, very short, four, eight. 
And then in, in a year, I grew an entire foot. And so as a little boy, I was very, very little. And she came on and said, hello, gorgeous. And I was just literally mesmerized. By the time she got to the song People, I was literally, I had goosebumps the entire movie. Wow. I came and home. you were seven? Seven. Wow. And I could remember a lot of it. I came home and I stood in the living room with this sheer curtain. It was basically a rag. And I said, people, people who need people. And I had a tear come down my eyes. I was able to like do the drama. No and way. My, yeah, I really did. I really could. And I told my mom when we left, I said, that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Whatever that is up there on that screen, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to be. Wow. And I knew at that young age. And then about three or four months after that, uh, we were watching TV and there was a movie that came on with New York City. And I said, that's my home. That's where I'm supposed to be. Wow. I'm not supposed to be here. And my mom's like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm just supposed to be there. And so that's where eventually it took me a while. Still seven, seven. Seven. Wow. Yeah. Talk about she the said even as a baby, wow. she said <laughs> as a baby, even at six or seven months, she said, I used to hum all the time. I would hum like or if music would, would be on the radio or something. She said that there was something in my face that she would just look at me and I would just be in my own little world. And I would just start humming. And by the time I was five and six, I was already harmonizing, like making up harmonies with the radio. And, and I, I don't know where I got it. Well, my grandfather, her father was an Irish tenor and he always dreamed of being a professional singer, but he got my grandmother pregnant, you know, back in the day when he was able to fulfill his dream. And then my mother's dream was always to be an actress and a writer. I became sort of an actress, writer, and a singer, all three of them combined in my lifestyle, you know, so I guess those genetics were strong, but no one had ever done anything professionally until, until me. Now I have a, a nephew who's a filmmaker, professional filmmaker, actor, and a director. And I had a niece who was an opera singer. What's that? Is he straight? He is straight. Yeah. Wow. Has a wife and three kids. Cool. He is straight. He's actually um, editing my documentary. We're working Excellent. on that together. Yeah. Dang. Finding a good editor. That's a great And deal. he's had a lot of background in doing that. So, and, and it's kind of beautiful to uh, work with my my nephew. And he actually, I saw him on stage when he was very young, 17 or 18. We're very, very similar types. He, we look a lot alike. He had a lot of my mannerisms. So it was kind of strange to look at someone and go, oh, huh. I kind of see myself up there. But so at seven, I knew. And then in the, in uh, my grade school, I remember the day that the, the Vietnam War ended, I think I was nine. I got a call from the principal to come down to the, the principal's office. And uh, I sang the song, Let There Be Peace on Earth, over the entire sound system. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd been singing in school, though. They knew uh, I've been singing in the choir. The, the right. choir teacher knew. She had told the principal that I was something, somebody special. She thought I had something really special. And then so all through, and unfortunately for me, because we were so poor and going to a public school, my grade school, the music teacher had a beautiful uh, music program. And then my high school that I went to, North High School in Evansville, was probably one of, rated one of the top uh, music schools for public schools in Indiana. Right. Wow. Because our, uh, my teacher, my professor of music in high school was best friends with the guy who ran the IU music program, Indiana University, which is one of the top music programs in the, the country. And so he would get all the arrangements and we would do them. We wore tuxes and tails, like 15, 16 years old. Yeah, it was amazing. And so I learned so much. And he also took me aside very early and said, you have something very special. And he knew, everyone knew that I wanted to do this professionally. He said, you can do it. I believe you can actually do this. Wow. And being poor, and my mom didn't know you know, how we were going to make this happen, but I was doing a, a concert, had a solo in the choir in high school, and there just happened to be a producer in the audience of theme parks in upstate Indiana, Santa Claus Land, Indiana. And it was a place called Santa Claus Land. There is a Santa Claus, Indiana, really? believe it or not. And he hired me on the spot backstage. He said, I want you to work at this, at this, this theme park. And I learned, you know, you're doing five shows a day. He learned all this material and he was giving me all these um, 
principal roles, even in the actual theme park, I was getting a lot of features more than a lot of people. He just saw my love and my passion for it. And I, you know, I started in high school, I started dancing with a friend. We'd do competitions. I would win money doing dance competitions. So I'd go out to little clubs at night that they had underage clubs for kids to go. Oh, really? We do disco. Yeah, I won several disco competitions. I won in Louisville, Kentucky. I won $300 when I was... 16 years old. And so I just started, I was, everything was always about performing. Even when, when I was a child and my one teacher in fourth grade, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Reynolds, she has what her name. She's, she said, Stephen, stop daydreaming. Not everything is about show business. I said, well, for me it is. And it always has been. <laughs> right. Not everything, but I, right. yeah, I love show business. I, I love what wow. I do. Did you go from Indiana to New York? No, that was a long journey to get to New York. I went from, I did the theme park, our high school, 16, 17, those two summers. Right after I finished high school, I went to Indiana State University of Evansville for a year. But out of that year, I probably was there about two months because I started getting professional jobs. So I was traveling. So I never, I mean, I, I probably would have flunked out had I been there, but I was able to charm the teachers and they knew that I was, you know, doing professional work and they kind of... I had that that way of just like, you know, letting know how much I love it and the passion, whatever. And they kind of gave me grades I didn't really deserve, if I have to be honest. Really? Because I never studied. I never. You should have gone into sales. <laughs> I don't think I've no. been good at sales. No. But no, so I started doing that. And then I, that summer, I started working at Kings Island, which is another amusement park, but really, really professional shows. A lot of my friends I work with now have been on Broadway, been in film, TV. So it was also, I think, fortunately, I think the angels literally were smiling down on me and they just knew with my poverty and not a background. And I never studied. I never studied singing, dancing, or acting. But I would watch. I, my way of studying was I would watch TV. I would listen to the radio. Right. I would see ballets on TV. And I would try to to imitate what they were doing. And I was very limber. I could kick behind my head and do splits and all that what? stuff. And I had natural rhythm. Yeah. And then the singing, I studied Barbara Streisand, you know, at Nat King Cole. As I got a little older, Diana Ross. These were all the people. Luther Vandross. So my learning was their style because they all had those, the greats. Oh, um, Ella Fitzgerald. Sarah Vaughn, the greats always had something that made them unique. And uh, Barbara was the, the biggest influence for me, though. But her straight tone, the way she could just take a phrase and do a straight tone and using lots of dynamics, going from very soft to very loud. Yeah. But storytelling was always about the storytelling. And so, and then I just started doing a little bit of acting, which also came in. And it's all storytelling, singing, dancing, acting. It's all storytelling and my composing the same way. It's a way for me to express myself and get all these things that are in my head out and into the world. But naturally, I haven't had any training in any of the, the above, oh. but have been lucky and had a very fortunate career. That's amazing. So how old were you when you finally arrived in New York? I arrived in New York via, I was living in Los Angeles. I moved out to Aunt LA. Oh, you in LA then? Okay. Yeah, I was, well, to back up a little bit, I was working at Kings Island and one of the guys in the show, he was a bass player and he also was a songwriter and he loved my voice. And so he took me in the recording studio and we recorded like five or six songs, original songs. So I thought, oh, now I have my demo. I can go to LA. So the job ended. I went to LA. I thought, I'm going to make it. Here's my big break. They're going to be waiting for me, screaming for me. Of course, it doesn't work that way. And so- uh, There are other people there, that guys that want to do it too? I, I, I didn't are? think there were. I, 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 I guess I was, huh. <laughs> so anyway, while I was there, I just started doing some theater work in LA. And I had an audition for a callback for a show called Les Miserables that was a huge hit in New York City. And I was up for a role called Marius, which is one of the principal characters. It was like my third callback. And the audition was at this place called the Debbie Reynolds Studio. Everybody remembers Debbie Reynolds. And so it was in North Hollywood. And so I'm kind of a type A. I'm always early. I'm always prepared. And that type of thing. And so I got there about a half an hour early. And then I noticed across the room, they were setting up for a different kind of audition. And the monitor, there's an equity monitor usually, which is someone that will come out and take your picture and your resume and make sure that you're showing up on time. 
and she came up and she said, oh, are you here for, for our, our show? And I said, no, what's your show? She said, Starlight Express, which is a roller skating spectacular that Andy Lloyd Webber had done first in London, then it moved to New York, which I'd seen in New York before I moved to LA. Right. And I went, oh Lord, no, I could, that show is not for me. <laughs> could I'm, you skate? I'm, no, point? I wasn't a skater. I went anything. Really? And so she said, oh, okay. And so I went and sat back down. And for some reason, then the, the people, the creative team that came in, for some reason, I guess the, the director or when the casting director saw my look and told her to come back out and ask if I would audition. So she came back a second time. I said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm here for my Les Mis audition. I'm ready to, I'm preparing for that. And she said, okay. She came back a third time. They said, they just want you to come in and say hi. You're, you're early. You said you got here a half an hour early. There's still 15 minutes before your, your audition. So I went so and I said hi. all this had happened in 15 minutes. All this boom, happened. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, it was that fast. Yeah, yeah. And so I just went in and the guy sitting behind the table was a guy named Paul Bogave, which I later realized was one of the top casting people in New York City. Oh. Yeah. Very, very influential musician and director, musical director. And so I was just being silly because I, I wasn't afraid or nervous. I was more concerned about my Les Mis audition. So I think I was just very free and very open. Right. And so he said, okay, just do me a favor. He said, I know you're not auditioning for this show. I know you don't skate. I know that you don't think this show is right for you. But you just, what do you have? What are you, gonna, what are you singing for your Les Mis callback? I said, well, I'm actually singing Empty Chairs and Empty Tables from the show. He said, well, do you have something else? I said, well, I have a song called The Day He Wore My Crown, which is a Sandy Patty, a gospel singer. I was a huge fan of hers as well. Right. But it's like a five minute piece. And I hadn't cut it. It was just in the back of my book, my audition book. And so I gave it to the piano player and I started singing and I did the entire song, five and a half minutes. Wow. And I was done and he just, he sat there quietly and then he's like, wow, could you sing something else? So I said, well, I have a song from Dream Girls called When I First Saw You. I thought he would cut me off. I sang that entire song, which is like a, like a three and a half minute song. Wow. And then after that, he said, okay, he said, I'm going to give this this music and I want you to come back tomorrow at nine o'clock. I said, I, I'm not right for this show. He said, just, just, just indulge me. Just take this music home. Go look at this music. And, and then I, I'll see you tomorrow at nine o'clock. I said, you won't see me at nine o'clock, but thank you so much. And so I'm, as I'm walking out the door, he handed me the sheet music. I went and did my Les Mis audition, which went really, really well. And then my best friend from... Uh, from New York happened to be in town auditioning because he worked for a cruise ship company. Right. And so, but he's a brilliant pianist. And so in his hotel room, there's a piano. And so I told him this whole crazy story <laughs> about Starlight Express. He said, well, come to, come to my room tonight and we'll just sit at the piano and we'll just play the song. I hadn't even taken the time to look what the song was. When I actually did, it was the title track called Starlight Express, which is the lead, the starring role. And the journey, it's all about, in a nutshell, it's basically based on the little engine that could, but there's a lot of spiritual elements. To me, the Starlight right. Express represented God. Right. And like I said earlier, I was always a seeker. And so I'm like, as I really looked at these lyrics, the chorus was like, Starlight Express, are you real? Yes or no? Starlight Express, please answer me. Yes, I don't want you to go. And that to me represented like a God, like a, a spiritual right. energy. Right. So I really connected with the lyrics. But as I tried to sing the song, it was very difficult. It was very challenging, probably a three and a half octave range, which is a very from very low right. to very, very high range. Right. I'd never sung that before. I was a lyric baritone. For all you musicians out there, which I usually sing up to about an F or a G was my highest note. Well, in this song, it had a high C and two B flats, which is very, very high. And so my friends started playing. I'm like, I can't sing that. I'm like, oh. And so I just stopped. I was too afraid. So we did it again. And I said, well, I'm not singing this. I can't sing this song. So I put it away, went back home that night, woke up at 7.30 in the morning, and literally a voice in my head said, you're going to that audition. You're going to that audition. So I turned to my boyfriend at the time, Dan, and I said, I keep getting this voice telling me to go. He said, well, just go. I said, I'm not going to go and crash and burn. I've never gone into an audition where I didn't feel prepared and didn't think I could do it. But something, something literally, it was, it was a force that I don't know where it came from. Propelled you. Propelled me. I took a shower. I started warming up my voice. I'm like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do when I get to that part. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I arrived there and there were two other guys there before me. My audition was at 10 o'clock. Not nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. Okay, and so I got there about 9.45 and I see two other people. There. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what they're here for. So the first guy goes in, he crashes and burns. He cracks so much. His voice is cracking. He comes out and he looks just terrified. 
I'm, and I'm getting nervous. He sang the song Starlight <laughs> Express there. We were all three there for that same row. I didn't realize oh, wow. that until I heard him sing. The second guy went in, he crashed and burned as well. And he came out. He's like, I don't know why I did this to myself. So I pick up my bag and I'm walking out the door. And they're like, Stephen, Stephen, Paul is ready for you. They're all ready for you. I'm like, I don't know what. Something literally, there was an energy and a force. I was walking out that door that I turned around and something in my head said, just, just give it a try. Go in there, give the song to the piano player. We start singing to it. It gets to this middle section. I've never sung these notes before in my life. I hit these notes gloriously like an angel, like like wow. a bird. And wow. I, I remember in my mind, I was just stunned by it. And I think I probably had an expression on my face that was sort of like, oh my God, where's this coming from? Which yeah. maybe who, worked as an actor. This? <laughs> who's singing this? And I finished and he said, that was great. He said, I want you to do it again. So then I was thinking, oh my God, now I got to do this a second time. I did it a second time. He said, one more time for me. He was trying to see if I had the stamina and the ability to be able right. to do that. And for some reason, it just got clearer and easier and easier by the third time. I was like, oh my gosh. So then after I'm done, he said, Wait, one more thing. He said, this this is uh, my colleague here, Sabina Grohman. She is the artistic director of the theater uh, in Hamburg called, um, oh gosh, I just forgot their name. Anyway, they did, they did Fan of the Opera. They did Les Mis. They did Cats. Right, right. Starlight was going to be their new show these huge productions. Wow. And so she said, can you just do me a favor and repeat after me? And I said, oh, sure. She said, wird es um mich dunkel, sehe ich ein Licht leuchten in der Ferne. And I just did it, which was German. She said, oh, this is German. I didn't even realize what it was. And she said, you have a great ear. She said, that's perfect, crystal clear of what I just said to you. So they said, could you give really? us a couple of minutes? So I go outside and I'm just thinking, this is such a crazy, bizarre thing. So I come back in and they said, would you just put on some skates? They had all these different size skates over in the corner. Oh, no. I'm like, I don't skate. When I was a kid, I did skate a couple times, but nothing, you know, like when I was very, very young, but not a big deal, that kind of thing. So like, what size is your foot? I told them I was a size eight. They had a size eight. I put it on. Then there was a skating coach there. She started having me do this choreography and it was just I don't know where it was coming from. Like the singing, it just was easy, easy. Then she started to say, can you spin? So she put me, showed me how to get on my toe stops and start doing pirouettes on skates, which I never would think I could do that. <laughs> Did that, had me skate backwards, never skated backwards in my life. It all was just, it was meant to be. Wow. It was meant to be. So I take this, as I'm taking skates off, Paul says, well, Stephen, I have an incredible announcement to make. I said, what's that? He said, we've been to Chicago. We've been to New York. We've been to all over Europe. LA is our last stop. And we found our leading man. We'd like for you to be our star of Starlight Express. Whoa. They offered me the role right there on the spot. And I was wow. just, I was just stunned and in shock. And I was thinking, I don't know what that means. He said, we'll call it, we'll be calling you in a couple of weeks to negotiate contracts and that sort of thing. He said, do you have an agent? I said, actually, I don't have an agent at this time. And they called me. And as I walked out to get in my car, it hit me. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to have to do this show. I'd seen it in New York City and it was terrifying. Very dangerous. They get up to skating 35, 40 miles an hour. They have a costume. What? 35, 40 miles an hour. Yes, three levels. They built the, the, they took the Gershwin Theater in New York City and transformed the entire thing, spent $20 million. This was back in 1987, 88. So that's a lot of money. And in Germany, they were building an actual stadium. So it was going to be even more money put on. And so I started thinking about this and I had to go back because I still had um, two more months of, I was working at San Bernardino Civic Light Opera doing, I had two more shows that I had to do. And so also, and I told my, my boyfriend at the time, I said, I cannot do this. I, I'm going to turn it down. I, I cannot do this. And also, I knew that it was two months away before rehearsal started. And the longer it was away, the more fear I was I was getting into. And like, he said, just wait and see what they offer you. But they called me back. And for some reason, I said yes and was getting more and more <laughs> frightened. And the company started rehearsing two weeks before me because I had a job. I'd already signed a contract to do a company in LA to finish this show. Anything goes and My Fair Lady. So the company was bonding for two weeks before I even got there, right. doing skating classes, all this stuff. So by the time I arrived, they had put me in my own little guest house with these two old German ladies that didn't speak a word of English. 
And I was terrified. And I then also started building up this whole publicity thing about me. The story's from LA and he's done all this and blah, 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 blah. And so I felt very, I was so terrified and shy and people probably thought I was aloof, but I was just petrified. I'd never, you know, been to a foreign country to right. sing in a foreign language, to skate. Then they tell me the costume weighs 100 pounds on my body. And then the helmet that I wear is 15 pounds. I no, was a, I not weighed 100 pounds. 100 pounds. And I was 136 pounds. So I was wearing 100 pounds on my body. And, and skating. And skating with 15 pounds on my helmet head. What? So I was a teeny tiny little thing. 27 inch waist. Boy, do I miss <laughs> that inch, that waist now. But it's not that now. And I did it. And somehow, some way, the angels. I mean, every day it was like you had like 20 minutes of sit-ups. You know, uh to build up their stamina. You skate for like two to three hours a day, trying to build up the strength in your legs and your stamina, singing at the top of my lungs. Then I had my uh, my phonetics classes, you know, to learn the German. It was crazy, terrifying. I would go home every night, literally, I'm not exaggerating. I would go home and I would cry. I would sit in the bathtub and just cry. And like, I can't do this, but I'm not a quitter. I'm a type A. Right. You say yes, you keep your commitment. My mom right. always said, your word means everything. If you right. say yes to something, you have to find a way. And somehow, some way I did it. And my mom, I flew my mother over for opening night. And she brought me three dozen red roses up to the very uh, stage when I took my bow. And I just broke down and just sobbed because I did it. And I was sobbing because I can't believe that I was able to take on this kind of a challenge and actually right. fulfill it. My mom told me later that night she'd collapsed so hard she'd broken blood vessels in her hand. She was so proud oh, of wow. me. So that showed me You're then and there. You're making me cry here, by the way. Oh, it just showed, went to yeah. show me that hard work and yeah. believing in angels. I mean, I angels have been, I've, I have protective angels that have really helped me through my life in several times in very, very dangerous situations. And I think that I just believe that the, the universe, it was from the first, them having me come into the room to actually the opening night, it was meant to be. And I think it broke a lot of fears in me for the time being. All those fears came back. If you could do that, you could do anything. Come and on. I said that to myself. And for the first six months, I felt that way. But like anything, you know what I mean? It starts, that confidence starts to whittle down, whittle down. Then you get back to LA or whatever. And then it's like another rejection, another rejection, another rejection. You start doubting yourself. But to get to your right. point when you'd asked me, from there, I left the job and I went to New York City. So I didn't make it how, to New York City. How long City. were you in Germany? Uh, I did six months. I was supposed to do a year. But I, once I was in the contract, it was just, it was so demanding and it, they don't have uh, union rules. It's not like New York and, and, and America where there were years. I mean, they just literally worked me into the ground. I would do eight shows a week and I would do television performances and radio performance, recording the album. And I was so exhausted. Like I said, I was 136 pounds. By the time I left there, I was probably 125 pounds. Wow. And I was just physically exhausted. And so when we first were negotiating my contract, I said, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. So I had a clause that I could leave after six months or I could stay here. And I decided to leave after six months, which was a good choice for me. I later went back three years later to work for that company again to promote and do television work. And then I would do the role of Rusty. That was the title character of Starlight. Right. Whenever the, the person playing went on vacation. So I got to do it again there for like a few, it ended up being a few weeks, probably three or four weeks in the course of a year. But I was mainly there just to promote and do television work for the company. And then they cast me to do it in Las Vegas. So I got to do it an entire year in Vegas. So by now I was ready. I felt like it was more my body. I knew there were union rules in, in Las Vegas that they couldn't just work me to, under the table. And I also didn't know how to say no. They say, oh, we want you to do this. And I'm like, I need to take a show off. I was one point I was so sick. I had like a 103 temperature, but I was afraid to call out and I went to work and did it. That's when I said, this is not, 
this is going to destroy my health. Right. And I didn't know how to say no. So I just, I left. And that was also another big life lesson, you know, having someone to negotiate, having an agent. If I had an agent, they would have said like, wait a minute, he'll only do this and this and this. But that's another part of my story, my journey that I don't mind talking about to give other people. I never felt worthy of getting an agent because I was dirt poor. I never had the foundation that you're worthy. So I did a lot of jobs working high profile jobs where people were making a lot more money than me because I didn't have the courage to get an agent to negotiate for me. It's something so I when battled. You, when you signed that, the German contract. Yes. So you had no agent at that no point? No agent. And I probably, yeah. an agent would have gotten me probably triple the amount of money that I accepted. And so it was a hard lesson. And even after that experience, you would have thought that I would have learned that lesson. I didn't learn that lesson until I met my husband, who I've been with now for 21 years, who is a master negotiator. <laughs> is he? A master at it. And so when people would hire me for a job, I, he would he could get me double and triple what I was afraid to ask for because he'd say, look at his resume. And fortunately, I just, I always worked even without an agent because directors, producers, they love my work. They would tell somebody else. So, I mean, I've had an incredible career, but it's all without an agent. I still don't have an agent. I'm now at the point what? right now, believe it or not, but now my dream has always been to, to be with CAA, Creative Artist Agency which is the top agency, Meryl Streep is with them, Julia Roberts, Adele, Beyonce. But I wow. think all this experience, I really finally have found it in my, my heart to believe that I'm worthy of that, that level and the, the experience that I've had. So I'll just go from no agent to the top agency in the world, right? So I've had a couple of meetings with people to try to get me there. I'm still not there. So if there are any listeners out here that know anyone at CAA, I really feel that that's where I'm supposed to be. Is it hard to get an agent? Um, I've never talked to all these podcasts. Yeah, I think I've never be. talked to anybody. About my that. husband had an agent and... um for me, like I said, that there was a time when I was working in Las Vegas, there was somebody, a, a friend of mine in the show had an agent and she, she loved my work, but she thought I already have three or four that are your type. So, you know, once again, they're looking for people that will fit in their little niche. niche. And so that also just, you know, also made me more frightened. And there's just something in the back of my mind that I literally had to fight to, to say that you are worthy, you know what I mean? And worthy of getting what you deserve. And my husband is, seriously has, has helped me to realize that, what my self-worth is. You know, but it, it is a constant battle. I think when you grow up poor and you didn't have a foundation, my mother was so busy taking care of all of us. My father died and she was 39 years old, had to take care of nine kids on her own in severe poverty. So there was, she gave me so much love, but not the foundation of like self-worth. And, you know, you are, if someone comes to you and they want you to do a job, you should say, I want this. And that's, that's why agents and managers so are so good because they do all that work. And right. then the artist gets to just focus on the, the creative the part, right. the aspect. But I mean, it's taken me a long time. I'm 62 years old. And been in the business 45 years and never had an agent, but had a really good career and been able, had some really incredible times where I made a lot of money, but I probably could have made a lot more if I had an agent. And right. a lot of times where I was dirt broke and poor, that's the life of an actor, an artist. Right. It's up and down, up and down. And now I'm to the, the last 20 years have been focusing on all of my work, my own personal independent artist. I write, produce for some, some other artists as well, but it's all about my, the journey I'm on now is my own creative expression, with mainly the work that I write myself is what I want to perform and produce. You mentioned you have a husband. I do. What's his name? My husband's name is Jared Bortz. We met doing a three-week Christmas show in 2001, right after 9-11. That Christmas, we were in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And I'd been single at this point in time for eight, almost nine years because my last relationship, I was traveling all over the world. I was gone all the time. I felt guilty. felt like, you know what I mean? I, you right. know, I had needs. And so I think I probably did things that I probably wish I hadn't cheated on him, you know, and I 
we're, we're still very close friends, but I just felt guilty. But I mean, I had like anybody needs and you'd be gone. I was gone probably eight or nine months out of the year, always on planes, traveling everywhere. And so when we finally ended, I thought I'm going to be seeing the rest of my life because I don't want to do that to another person. And I don't want to do that to myself, the guilt that I would feel of maybe doing things, you know, behind their back, that sort of thing. And but on a three week job, jokingly, I walked into the studio and he was a dancer. And from behind, he had cute ass. He's wearing <laughs> ballet tights. He's a beautiful dancer. And I said, oh, there's my there's my new boyfriend. I just said jokingly. And lo and behold, three weeks later, the show's ending. And I invited him to meet me in Nashville for New Year's Eve. He came there, New Year's Eve. And we've been together ever since for 21 years. No way. And there's an 18 and a half years age difference. He's 18 and a half oh, years younger. Really? I say he's 18 and a half years older because I'm the baby and he's the grandpa. <laughs> All my friends call me the baby and they call him the grand. We've always so been the baby out. at home. Right? I've always been the baby. And and yeah. my energy is 62. When people meet me, they say, oh my God, you're like a, a 30-year-old living in a 60-year-old body. Because I'm just still, I'm an Aquarian and we're very free and we're very open right. and we're very young spirited and young minded, uh-huh. you know, that kind of a thing. So it works. It works for us. It's been challenging. We've had some challenging times the last few years, but I think we'll go into some of that artist. on your second podcast because I'm going to have you okay. back, you know. Yeah. So when you had him with you on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. to when you actually lived together. What's the time span? Uh, well, we drove back. I had rented a car because I lived in New York City and he had just moved to New York City a few months oh, he before that because he was okay. just out of college. He was only 22. I thought he was like 35 because oh. he was losing his hair. So I saw him dance and I thought, oh, poor guy is losing his hair and he's in his 30s and he was 22 years old. <laughs> so He's I, very handsome. He's, he's very sexy. Now he's bald and I love bald men. I'm very attracted to bald men. And so we drove back to New York City. So, and so we had a lot of time to really get to know each other. I kind of was telling him my story, which kind of freaked him out a little bit. He comes from very traditional, him and two brothers, his mom and dad, madly in love with each other. They grew up, you know, upper middle class, you know, so he'd hear all the stories of my life and the poverty and my father and mental illness and that sort of thing. And I think it just, it really did. At one point he said, I, I need to pull over. Your life is just too much for me to take. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, no, no. He said, I, it's beautiful you're sharing it with me, but I just have never met anyone like this in my life. And then we got back to New York City and I dropped him off and we kind of, I, I kissed him, whatever. And I, he said, oh, I have to tell you something. He said, I, I don't want a boyfriend. And I burst out laughing. I said, I don't want a boyfriend either. So this has been a fun little journey, but I had no intentions of this turning into anything other than what it's been for the last few days. And, uh, but then the next day he called or I called him, we went to have dinner and it was sort of like, we're getting to know each other, that sort of thing. And we right. spent almost every day together. And then probably about six months into that relationship, he moved into my apartment. So he left the apartment he was in and, and we'd been together ever since. Well, it wasn't too lesbian of you. <laughs> we didn't have cats at the time. <laughs> we still don't have cats. Uh-oh. Oh. Now you have, you still have a place in New York, don't you? We do. Yeah. We, we our primary place? residence. Is that the same place you were? No, no, because, uh, something, we, we had a tragic accident that happened. Right. So we had to move out of our fifth story walk up. Now we live in a different apartment building with an okay. elevator and doorman, that sort of thing. But it's our oh. primary residence. We still live right. in New York. We just, this is our first winter, spending our winters here. How do you like? I love it so much. There's a lot of creative types here. Oh there? my God. I met in the short time we've been here. I met so many people. I met you and I met you, like, sat down and we were seeing theater together. Right. And I met two other writers. I'm working on two new projects with a, an Emmy award-winning writer and director. I'm working with the, the guy at the play that I'd seen, Terry Ray. He and I are right. starting work on a new musical. There's somebody else that I'm doing something that's brewing. So the creativity, and I love just the peacefulness. It's completely opposite energy from New York City, but I still right. love New York City. 
anxiety, but it's a nice balance of be here for six months and then be there for six months. And by the time this six, these six months are almost over, I'll be ready to go back there for a while and then I'll be ready to come back here. And so I feel when, very when will, blessed. When will the six months be over? We're going back uh, the third week of May. We'll go back to New York City okay. for four months. And then we're going to come back in the fall for six weeks for Pride. We were here last Pride, Gay Pride in Palm Springs. We love right. that. And then we'll go back and we always spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with some dear friends of ours. And then beginning of January, we'll be here from January till May. That's the plan. You know, life, you know, then life happens. Busy well, making well, plans and then life up, happens. You have New York plates on the, on your car. So do you drive when you go back? No, we have, a, we have it shipped. Are you, the you car do? shipped, yeah. Every six months, you're going to ship that puppy back and forth. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just it's just too challenging with a with our situation right. to try to to drive or do that right. sort of thing. And also, I I hate driving. I used to tell my <laughs> my husband, oh, we could drive cross country. He's like, yeah, right. I drive an hour, and I'm like, eh, can you drive? So, wow. yeah, yeah, it's just so worked just out. It. Yeah, it's worked yeah. out just to do that. Well, I didn't tell you I. I started going to uh, Terry's acting class a month ago. Oh, you did? Yeah. I want to take an acting. Me and Jared, my husband, both want to like it's, just it's see really, what it's, it's like. Really It'd be fun. fun class. It's a fun. Class. Oh, that's fun. That's yeah. great. That's wonderful. I think we're going to wrap this episode up, but I am going to have you back because I want to hear more. My pleasure. I would love to be yeah. this. Thank you. I think I told you before we started. I liked you and Jared the second I met you. I liked you too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's I, been it's been really fun having you here. Feeling is mutual. Thank you. Thank you for having me.